0: This is the very definition of totalitarianism. Uh, what?
1: Totalitarianism? Okay. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Because to the right, here I am Stuck in the middle with you I am Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica with you. Radio in Los Angeles This is the broadcast As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, so FM, FM in LA 98.7 in Santa Barbara 93.7 in San Diego 99.5 in Ridgecrest And China Lake, California Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California On KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN And Eureka's KGOE In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui-Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe, even during pandemics. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio. And Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And let's just go ahead and say it's good to be back on air with you today. We'll just say that, Desi Doyen. <laughs>
2: you can go ahead and say that uh, if yeah. you like. All
1: right. Uh, in truth, though, we we really needed a few days off late last week uh, to at least partially help heal my aching brain. So we are tremendously grateful to Nicole Sandler for filling in for us uh, last Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday with some great shows and interviews, including the Congress, uh, with the Congressman uh, Eric Swalwell on impeachment, former CIA operative Jack Rice on the mind-blowing Russia-Taliban bounty scheme to kill American troops, which Donald Trump continues to ignore, and a fascinating interview with Jeff Charlotte, author of The Family, ...about the uh, religious rights takeover of D.C. on his newest article in The New Yorker, I think it is, on the twisted Trump cult. And it really is a cult, and a frightening one at that, if you listen to his interview with Nicole. You can always uh, download any of our shows for free at bradblog.com and share them with your friends, your family, your enemies especially... Uh, So uh, thanks to those who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate, our shows are free for all forever. So uh, before we took some time off, I noted that uh, while this year was a, a pretty difficult one on which to find something, anything to celebrate on July 4th. In fact, the holiday was exactly this year, 200 days from Inauguration Day on 2021. And potential Independence Day from Donald Trump that day, Uh, which does, in fact, seem like something pretty worth preemptorily or maybe aspirationally celebrating this past weekend. I don't know about you, but I can definitely... I uh, used a few things to look forward to these days. That is one of them. Here's another, perhaps more of a warning than a celebration. Uh, but today we are now exactly 120 days from Election Day this November 3rd. But hey, who's counting? I know Desi Doyen is, oh, uh, you have a, a count a day till Trump is gone <laughs> well, calendar till, till on your wall. Well, election
2: day. But remember, as you've mentioned, yep. you know, there's still more days after that where until actual Inauguration Day, that if all goes well, hopefully he'll yes. be gone by Thank then. Thank you
1: for including that if all goes well, because there's a lot that can not go well between uh, now and November 3rd and then between November 3rd and uh, January 20, 2021. So... I've been warning, buckle up, everyone. Uh, so it, you know it—it it, it is with as much trepidation as excitement, right? Right about now, when I look forward to election day, while it is only 120 days, it is a long road until we get there. And Trump unveiled some of his very ugly, very ugly plans that we will all be forced to endure. Between now and then, over the weekend, uh, during his offensive political remarks at Mount Rushmore and at the White House, to, in theory, celebrate the nation's birthday with a big, ugly, white supremacist speech and rhetoric. Perhaps it was fitting. In any event, we will be joined to discuss what happened this weekend and much more with the great Heather Digby Parton of Salon and Digby's Hullabaloo shortly. And if time allows, uh, we'll open the phone to your calls at 818-985-5735 with any questions or thoughts for Digby or myself about what went on this past weekend uh, and what we can all look forward to between now and Election Day and even beyond, as, as noted. So uh, there is much to endure between now and then, at least here in the U.S., if not everywhere else. Some European nations are closing in on a milestone that, to the U.S., now seems distant, virtually stopping The new coronavirus from spreading within their territories, according to Wall Street Journal today, echoing the achievement of Asia Pacific countries such as New Zealand, Vietnam and Taiwan. A handful of places in Europe are now reportedly uh, finding only a smattering of new daily infections, according to the Wall Street Journal. Their success in containing the pandemic has allowed them to reopen their economies earlier At a faster clip and with greater confidence than the stop, start, failed effort of many U.S. states. Estonia. Estonia has detected only 12 infections, 12 infections in the past two weeks. Not deaths, but infections total over the past two weeks. Iceland. Has seen only 40. Norway has reported 187. Ireland has reported 148. Now, while those might sound like, well, that's quite a few infections for a small country, well, the latter two, Norway and Ireland, are each comparable in population to our great state of South Carolina. How many uh, infections did they have over that same period of the last two weeks? Well, South Carolina reported 17,000 new cases of coronavirus infections in those two weeks. Aside from restrictions covering large gatherings, Estonia has now lifted almost all of the measures that it put in place to suppress transmission of the virus since declaring a nationwide, a nationwide emergency in early March According to Estonia's deputy secretary general for health, I guess having a nationwide response to an epidemic can actually help to contain it. Go figure. The paper notes that Estonians like to joke that in common with their equally taciturn neighbors in Finland, they are looking forward to the day when they no longer need to observe a two meter distance from each other in public places. The deputy secretary general quipped, we can go back to our usual Five meters of separation. <laughs> well, someday uh, maybe America will be uh, will be great, like New Zealand and Vietnam and Taiwan and Estonia again. For now, we seem to be anything but. Governments are in a bind. The Rupert Murdoch-owned paper notes. Move toward a more open society and hope to stay on top of new flare-ups or keep the pressure up to push case numbers as close to zero as possible? For some public health experts, the question is a no-brainer. The human toll is too great. The countries that can and have the capacity and the resources should eliminate it, according to Devi Sridhar, the professor of global public health at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland who advocates countries maintain social distancing and other restrict other restrictions until internal transmission of the virus is effectively halted. But, you know, why bother listening to health experts? Countries, of course, could then switch their focus to screening travelers and quarantining them if necessary to ensure that they don't seed new outbreaks, outbreaks she said. That is a better strategy economically than easing restrictions too soon, Because an uptick in cases might lead to lockdowns being reimposed, she said. Well, guess which strategy the U.S. has decided to use? If there is uh, good news on that score, it is that at least some longtime corporate media outlets who have spent years dangerously giving the benefit of the doubt to bad political actors have at least become somewhat more direct in calling them out as such. For example, from uh, Maeve Reston at CNN today. The gulf between reality and President Donald Trump's delusional vision of a waning coronavirus threat was on full display this weekend as cases soared in key hotspots while he delivered speeches at Mount Rushmore and at the White House with little physical distancing and few masks directly contradicting the advice of his own public health experts. Playing with fire at a time when experts say the spread of the virus appears to be spiraling out of control, Trump continued gaslighting Americans about the threat to their health during a Fourth of July speech from the South Lawn of the White House, where he minimized the dangers of COVID-19 with a baseless statement that 99 percent of coronavirus cases are harmless, a claim his own Food and Drug Administration chief could not back up on Sunday morning. While many Americans flouting public health guidelines during the holiday weekend, uh, Trump's conduct is creating an inflection point for the GOP at a time when his poll numbers have tumbled. With American lives on the line, the question now is whether members of the Republican Party will continue to stand by in silence as the president peddles fiction about a deadly virus, and if so, will they pay a price at the ballot box in November? Well, that's a good question that I will try to remember to raise with Heather Digby-Parton shortly. While Republicans deserted Trump on the issue of facial coverings, with many urging Americans to wear masks over the past week, they have been mostly silent about Trump's effort to deceive the public about the risks the virus poses. uh, in just the first four paragraphs of that article, delusional vision, gaslighting Americans, baseless statements, peddling fiction, deceiving the public. And that's just the four, first four paragraphs of the article. So good for CNN for at least calling him out, calling out facts for what they are. Facts. Trump spent the weekend raging about protecting statues of American heroes with racist pasts while setting an irresponsible example as the virus spreads. This time, GOP silence, uh, Maeve Reston reports, could become complicity jeopardizing public health and safety as well as American lives. Could become? Okay, they pulled a punch there. I think the president is stepping forward, said Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, who faces a competitive re-election in November. She told uh, CNN's Dana Bash on State of the Union on Sunday when asked whether she thought that Trump had exhibited, quote, failed leadership on coronavirus, much as she had criticized former President Barack Obama on Ebola back in 2014. She claimed at the time that his leadership on Ebola was, quote, failed, even though the far more deadly disease resulted in just two deaths of Americans. Uh, while coronavirus so far has infected almost three million in the U.S., has killed at least 130 Americans, with record rates of infections now each day over the past 27 days in this country. But Obama de- displayed a failed leadership, while Senator Joni Ernst, who is up for re-election in Iowa in four months, won't describe Trump's leadership on COVID-19 as having failed. Well, maybe that's because she is a coward.
2: Or maybe because she just has trouble with math. I mean, two <laughs> people killed in Ebola in the Ebola crisis versus 130,000 plus in the last four months. I mean, you know. Well, math.
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, she does have trouble with math. That would be putting it nicely. Uh, in any event, um, I think she's a coward like pretty much all of the Republicans who are at least in elected office right now. The president's uh, falling poll numbers, particularly in swing states in his matchup against former Vice President Joe Biden, are now an area of serious concern for Republicans. And many longtime GOP strategists are puzzled by his dual strategy of ignoring the virus while trying to incite race wars. Yes, that is always a good look for a president, Incite race wars in the run up to your reelection for a second term. And yes, we will be talking about that, no doubt, with Digby as well. All at the same time when new polls suggest Joe Biden could defeat Trump in Iowa. Yes, in Joni Ernst, Iowa, on the same ballot on which Senator Ernst is running, uh, in what, until uh, Donald Trump, was considered to be a reliably red state. Meanwhile, the president's absurdist view that the U.S. has turned the corner on COVID-19 has also increasingly isolated him from key Republican leaders like Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who are pleading with the public now to wear masks down in Texas and to, yes, pretty please stay home. It's not mandatory yet, but pretty please Yet the president's punitive nature still makes GOP elected officials and his own public health experts loathe to criticize or correct him. An example of that dynamic came Sunday when Dana Bash repeatedly pressed U.S. Food and Drug Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn. This is Donald Trump's own FDA official, FDA commissioner, to explain the president's false statement At the maskless White House July 4th party that 99% of coronavirus cases are, quote, totally harmless. She tried over and over again to uh, get Han to respond. Here's some of what she got from Dr. Han, again, the head of Donald Trump's U.S. FDA on Sunday.
3: Dr. Han, I realize this is not easy for you. You are doing, uh, working really hard to try to protect Americans. So I just have to ask you flatly to that end, to protect Americans, is the president wrong?
0: So I'm not going to get into who's right and who's wrong. (laughs) What I'm going to say, Dana, is what I've said before, which is that it's a serious problem that we have. We've seen this surge in cases. We must do something to stem the tide, and we have this in our power to do it by
1: following the guidance from the White House task force and the CDC.
3: So you won't say whether 99% of coronavirus cases are, quote, completely harmless is true or false, what the president said at the White House last night?
1: Dana, what I'll say is that we have data in the White House Task Force. <laughs> Those data show us that this is a serious problem. People need to take it seriously. Coward. Another coward. Another coward. But uh, f- frankly, if we could just make fun of him as a coward, that would be swell. But his cowardice is costing lives, potentially tens of thousands of American lives.
2: Yeah, and you just got to love that long pause where he tries to figure out what the hell he's going to say to not contradict yes. the president, who's, you know, whose words are... are endangering people.
1: Yes. In fact, it is not true that 99% of coronavirus cases are, quote, totally harmless. All of this as hundreds of thousands of American lives hang in the balance of these comments, whether it's from the president or from his FDA commissioner. As some U.S. experts now warn that we could see as many as 500,000 deaths here in the U.S. this year. If the infection rate continues to spread as it is now, Trump's former Homeland Security advisor, Tom Bossert, tweeted this ominous message on Sunday. He said, quote, we are in trouble. Once a state is over one percent prevalence, it becomes much harder to extinguish the flare up. Bossert tweeted, it will take a huge effort to put out these fires more than masks alone. We could top 500,000 U.S. deaths this year if this current trend continues. Half a million dead. So, Senator Ernst, uh, where is that failed leadership again? One exception to Republican cowardice was the Republican mayor of Miami-Dade County, Carlos Jimenez, who contradicted the president on Sunday as he finds his county in a difficult predicament. He says the virus, no, is not harmless. Absolutely not. Jimenez said on uh, CBS Face the Nation over the weekend, noting the positivity rate is around 20 percent in his area. He said that more Floridians need critical care. He said when you have more cases, you obviously will have more hospitalizations, more ICUs, more respirators, and unfortunately, you'll have more fatalities, said Jimenez. Contrast that with what Bossert said, that when, you know, you have more than a 1% prevalence, it becomes harder to put it out. Well, they've got a 20% prevalence now in Miami-Dade County, in Florida, in an election year. Hopefully voters will keep that in mind and realize whose failed leadership is uh, affecting them right now. But never mind all of that. Donald Trump has a race war to cause and an election to win. So the virus was barely mentioned at either of his two death rallies for the 4th of July over the weekend. More on that with uh, Heather momentarily. But first, some quick news today out of the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court. And I'm happy to say it's not terrible news today. Once again, unlike their spate of election law-related news over the past week or so, the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday declined to strike down a federal law banning automated calls to the nation's cell phone users. Well, hooray for that. By a vote of 6-3, to the court rejected a challenge to a federal law passed in 1991, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, intended to stop the nuisance of computer-dialed cell phone calls. In 2015, Congress added an exception to that law, allowing robocalls to be made to collect debts owed to the federal government. Oh, so they get to make robocalls. Got it. Well, a group of fundraisers, political organizations, and pollsters filed a lawsuit claiming that the revision uh, made the law unconstitutional because it discriminated on the basis of the content of the call. The government could make robocalls, but they could not. So this is a victory here for them. Um Well, actually, a victory, had it gone their way, would have unleashed automated calls to cell phones just as the 2020 presidential election campaign heats up. Thankfully, that did not happen. The court said that the provision applying to the government uh, and the, the government debts, that that must be stricken from the law, allowing the general ban on robocalls, however, to stand for all. Thank you. Americans passionately disagree about many things, but they are largely united in their disdain for robocalls, wrote accused sexual predator and now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. He finds that the exception to the ban created by Congress is unconstitutional under the First Amendment, but that the overall ban can remain in place. That's important because it suggests that he believes in something called severability. That's just because that's when one part of a law is found unconstitutional. You can remove that part of the law without killing the entire law. Now, that could have some wide implications for future cases heard by this court specifically. Steve Vladek of the University of Texas Law School says how courts should treat the rest of a statute when one provision is found unconstitutional is at the heart of the big Obamacare challenges that the justices will be hearing next fall. Today's decision, he says, suggests that only Justice Thomas and Gorsuch— are sympathetic to Texas's argument in that, the, in, that, in, in that particular case that the entire ACA should be struck down. They're arguing that, well, one part of it was unconstitutional, uh, according to a lower court judge finding that the uh, tax penalty mandate is unconstitutional. Therefore, we must kill the entire Affordable Care Act. That is actually the argument that will be before the Supreme Court next year. Uh, And maybe good news here that uh, at least Justice Kavanaugh and and, uh, some of the others who are not named Thomas or uh, Alito... I'm sorry, not named Thomas or Gorsuch, uh, agree that you can strike part of a law without killing the entire law. We will ask Mark Joseph Stern of Slate about that when he joins us on tomorrow's broadcast, as well as about uh, the even more anticipated opinion handed down by the Supremes also today regarding the Electoral College. The Supreme Court ruled unanimously on Monday, unanimously. When was the last time you heard that from this court? Uh, that states can, in fact, require presidential electors to back their state's popular vote winner in the Electoral College. The ruling in cases in Washington state and Colorado just under four months before the 2020 election leaves in place laws in 32 different states in the District of Columbia that bind electors to vote for the popular vote winner, as electors almost always do, But not always. So-called faithless electors have not been critical uh, to the outcome of any presidential election, at least not so far. But that could change in a race decided by just a few electoral votes. The plaintiff in one of the two combined cases heard at the Supreme Court, Michael Baca, an elector from Colorado, he was on this program in 2016 on the broadcast explaining his effort to convince Trump electors to vote against Donald Trump at the Electoral College. As I said, you can download that show from 2016 at bradblog.com. His effort uh, did not succeed, unfortunately, at keeping Donald Trump out of the uh, White House, as you may have noticed. And Baca was removed as an elector before he was able to cast a vote for someone other than who he had been elected to elect at the Electoral College. The Supreme Court, Overturned a lower federal court ruling uh, that uh, holding that uh, states may indeed disallow so called faithless electors from casting their so called faithless vote at the presidential electoral college, and thus many are relieved today that at least one bit of chaos might be avoided in the 2020 elections. We will discuss that uh, as well with Mark Joseph Stern on tomorrow's broadcast. But as the chaos that this president hopes to bring to the 2020 election, well, as to that, we're joined by Heather Digby Parton next to discuss the president's race-baiting July 4th holiday weekend. Because, of course, what else would you do on July 4th? And the other curious and even deadly choices and failures, yes, failures, Senator Ernst, of the Trump administration, just four months away now from Election Day. And if you have any thoughts or questions for the great Heather Digby Parton of Salon and Hullabaloo uh, on any of that, uh, or for me, I guess, give us a call right now at 818-985-5735. We'll see how many, if any, we can get to later today. Quick break, and we are back with Heather Digby Parton right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. No, I'm not going to be squaring off with Heather Digby Parton, the legendary Oscar-winning Italian composer Ennio Morricone, who created the theme for the iconic spaghetti western The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and often haunting soundtracks for such Hollywood Classic gangster movies as The Untouchables, the uh, epic Once Upon a Time in America, as well as The Mission, and many others died on Monday. He was 91 years old. Morricone's longtime lawyer, Giorgio Asuma, said the maestro, as he was known, died in a Rome hospital of complications following surgery after a recent fall in which he broke a leg. I am Ennio Morricone, and I am dead began the message. In the greeting, the composer went on to explain that the only reason he was saying goodbye this way and had requested a private funeral was, quote, I don't want to bother anyone. During a uh, career that spanned decades and earned him an Oscar for Lifetime Achievement in 2007, Morricone collaborated with some of Hollywood's and Italy's top directors. In total, he produced more than 400 original scores for feature films, most of them infectious. Uh, the the themes not uh, the... I see what you did the, there. Yeah, uh, inspiration he wrote does not exist. Uh, actually, he said that in an interview with the A.P. in 2004. What exists is an idea, a minimal idea that the composer develops at the desk, and that's and that small idea becomes something important. In a later interview with Italian state TV, Morricone cited study, discipline, and curiosity. As the keys to his creative genius writing, music, like all creative arts, comes from a long path along life's experiences, he said. He will be missed, but his iconic music will live forever in all of our hearts and minds. A sad day, but a happy one um, for me in that I've been listening to a bunch of his music again today. A swell antidote to what went on this weekend in the U.S. on what, at least for many, if not all of us, used to be a holiday that made... Uh, Some proud of being American. Donald Trump did his best, of course, to undermine that as well this weekend, as Heather Digby Parton of Salon described it today over there as a deadly pandemic continues to sweep through the country, resulting in an economic disaster. The president of the United States gave a couple of fiery speeches in which he barely mentioned any of that and instead declared war on half of America. On Friday the 3rd, Donald Trump flew to Mount Rushmore to appear before a flock of adoring fans and deliver the message he intends to carry him through November. He declared that the country is under siege, not from the so-called invisible enemy of COVID-19 or even the usual invading hordes of foreigners and terrorists storming the borders but from the American people who apparently he is now waging war against. Now, I don't usually like to play much of what this president has to say, since most of it is out-and-out lies, false information. But in case you did not hear his remarks at Rushmore on Friday night, you should, because this apparently is how he is planning on running for re-election over the next four months. And you should be prepared for it. As we
0: meet here tonight, there is a growing danger that threatens every blessing our ancestors fought so hard for, struggled. They bled to secure. Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, to fame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders to face our most sacred memorials and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Many of these people have no idea why they're doing this, but some know exactly what they are doing. They think the American people are weak and soft and submissive. But no, the American people are strong and proud, and they will not allow our country and all of its values, history, and culture to be taken from them. In our schools, our newsrooms, even our corporate boardrooms, there is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. If you do not speak its language, perform its rituals, recite its mantras, and follow its commandments, then you will be censored, banished, blacklisted, persecuted, and punished. It's not going to happen to us. Make no mistake, this left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American Revolution. In so doing, they would destroy the very civilization that rescued billions from poverty, disease, violence, and hunger, and that lifted humanity to new heights of achievement, discovery, and progress. To make this possible, they are determined to tear down every statue, symbol, and memory of our national heritage. That is why I am deploying federal law enforcement To protect our monuments, arrest the rioters, and prosecute offenders to the fullest extent of the law.
1: Now, to be clear, that was not a campaign rally. That was Donald Trump speaking on uh, the 4th, actually the 3rd of July at Mount Rushmore at a national monument. Uh, Essentially, you know, talking about far left fascism. Now, the next night... Back in Washington on July 4, he delivered a similar message and a solemn promise to his small but devoted audience of specially invited and, yes, almost maskless guests on the White House lawn.
0: This is the very definition of totalitarianism, and it is completely alien to our culture and to our values, and it has absolutely no place in the United States of America. We are now in the process of defeating the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing.
1: Yeah, and if anybody has no clue about what they were doing, that would be Donald uh, to Trump speaking about totalitarianism. Uh, At the White House on July 4th. Uh, He also, as Heather Digby Parton notes at Salon, went on to repeatedly promise to unify the nation. Presumably after all of the left-wing fascists, Marxist, anarchists, agitators, and looters have been vanquished. She writes, if you liked his American Carnage inaugural address, you had to love this pair of angry declarations of war against fellow Americans on the day the country celebrates It's freedom and independence. Heather Digby Parton is the much-beloved longtime blogger known as simply Digby and the proprietor of the long-running Hullabaloo blog. She's also a regular contributor at Salon.com and the winner of the Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. And she joins us now after a far-too-long absence on the broadcast. Hey, welcome back to the broadcast, Heather.
3: Thank you for having me. Good to be
1: here. You know, so when we last spoke, it's been months. Uh, in in what is you know, well, months ago, it was about impeachment and the Democratic presidential primary, which both seem like a thousand years ago now, Heather. Uh, even though the vote on impeachment. By the way, it was just February, and the Democratic primary was only settled, I think, in what, April or so? And we have had, you know, this this habit of having you on the show for big moments during the Trump presidency uh, from the day that he came down the escalator on forward. So this weekend, for some reason, Heather, those speeches feel like that to me. They feel like a watershed moment uh, or, as you described it, a, a bookend to his American Carnage inaugural address did you hear it in a similar way?
3: I did. I think you're exactly right. This uh I well, I mean, if nothing else, I think we can see what the contours of the next 4 months of the presidential campaign are going to be mm-hmm. and how he and his people have decided that they're going to uh deal with the real crises that are, you know, manifesting themselves in the country. The obvious one is
4: mm-hmm. the, the
3: uh COVID-19. And the rapid spread of it throughout the country, and the other is this uh, ongoing protest um, of you know of, of unarmed black men being killed by police and, and systemic racism in general. Um, he has decided that he is going to spend the next four months uh, basically declaring war on his fellow yeah. uh, American citizens, and he is going to defend uh, dead statues of dead Confederate soldiers. <sighs> rather than actual live, you know, American humans who are dying in vast numbers. In fact, today the Washington Post reported that they've decided that they believe that people will get over the coronavirus or, quote, if we stop highlighting it, the base will move on and the public will learn to accept 50 to 100,000 new cases a day. They're hoping they they told the Washington Post that Americans will grow numb to the escalating death toll. I, I, I mean
1: i yeah uh, yeah, I know it it just it it leaves you speechless uh and <laughs> i it, well and and i I don't know if you heard the in the uh, previous segment I talked about uh, his own uh, uh, uh national security advisor former national security advisor Tom Bossert said we could be looking at five hundred thousand dead Americans by the end of this year. If the uh, if the uh, pandemic continues as it has, I don't know that America is going to get tired of of that and say, oh, well, we just lost half a million people. Who cares? Let's, uh, you know, make make America great again by electing Donald Trump. Uh, Heather, on the uh, in in his speeches after, you know, condemning the very definition of totalitarianism or whatever he called it. He then went on to discuss his plans of crushing the radical Marxist left. So there's a whole lot to make sense of here. Uh, Good luck, Heather. He's using our national monuments themselves for a bald political re-election campaign speech, two of them, in fact, the White House and uh, Mount Rushmore, uh, over two nights. And he's calling for a war, essentially, between Americans to try and win that re-election. So, A, am I understanding that correctly? And, B, does anybody imagine that anything like that will actually work? What am I missing?
3: I, You know, I, yeah, I don't think you're, you're missing anything. I mean, this, the idea that this is going to work, first of all, none of the polling that's been done, and, you know, take the polling with a grain of salt, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, but none of it has shown that this is having any effect. I mean Trump just he assumed and I think there were a fair amount of other people who did too that thought there would be a big backlash against the Black Lives Matter protests and that everybody'd go back to 19 you know 68 and we'd rerun the you know Richard Nixon George Wallace mm-hmm. you know campaigns and it just hasn't happened and you know there are a number of reasons for that um I'm sure you've discussed it at length on the show over the last couple of the last few weeks mm-hmm. but I mean, the fact is, is that America is that America's in a different place, and, and the majority of people are sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter protests. And furthermore, no matter how much he tries to downplay what is going on, his own failure, his own massive, monumental failure mm-hmm. in dealing with the biggest crisis of his presidency and the biggest health crisis that we've seen in a century, um, and he has absolutely whiffed on it in the most blatant and obvious way. I mean, during, you know, we, didn't, we weren't talking during the period when he was coming before the country every single day mm-hmm. and talking about hydroxychloroquine yes. and telling people that maybe we could drink disinfectant yeah. or whatever, all this stuff, proving Over and over again, his own incompetence and total ignorance, even on a basic kind of, you know, junior high school level of understanding of how science works, um, he showed that. And I don't think that any amount of this, you know, he may gin up his base. He didn't Mm -hmm. need to, by the way. They love him. They care. Whatever he says is fine. I mean, he could have said, and had he done so, and I really think this is important to note I think the real proof of how incompetent, utterly incompetent he really is, is that this would have been an opportunity for him to turn the page. Coming off of impeachment, I mean, you know, yes, he survived it, but everybody knows it was purely because of the partisan cowardice of the Republican Party that he survived it. Had he confronted this, the way I think... Virtually any other president would have, which would have been to deploy the national government. Mm-hmm. In a, you know, we had a, we have a military that has this tremendous twenty six thousand member logistics corps that you could have gotten the PPE deployed, the, mm-hmm. the, um, Defense Protection Act, and gotten manufacturing going, and done all of this stuff, and taken charge, and said, "Here I am. I'm the big executive here. I'm going to take charge. I'm going to do what needs to be done." Instead. Talk about, you know, being clueless as he put it in his in his speeches over the weekend talking about, you know, the people who are clueless about whats go- what they're doing. Well, he just proved it himself. This would have been an opportunity for him to say, look, you know, yeah, you may not like me and I've got a bunch of, of you know, done a bunch of t- crazy things. But here in the midst of a crisis, you wanted an executive. I'll give you an executive. Whoa. This is a guy who knows how to do it. And he did not do it. At all. And I think that the veil fell off of, well, not the Republican base, Mm -hmm. but the independents, I think, who may have been clinging to the idea that this guy, you know, for all of his flaws was somehow good at something the the,
1: the, so. <laughs> the the bottom has dropped out when it comes to independence in the polling and that's what's you know been the the, the big change in the polling uh, you know exactly. Republicans still love him it seems although a little bit less so Democrats still hate him uh, but the independents are just over a cliff and you know what is you know you mentioned what he could have done with the virus coming out of the uh, impeachment it had occurred to me you know we were talking earlier about uh, obama's response to uh, uh, to ebola he had put ronald klein in charge of that response and it was wildly effective donald trump would be looking at absolute positive reelection i believe in 4 months had he simply named ron klein to run the uh, coronavirus pandemic. He could have said he's done it before. He did a good job. Democrats would have said, oh, look, hooray. he's, He's, you know, brought on a Democrat on board. That would have been it. He would have won. Instead, He's now, you know, seemingly trying to spark a race war. Uh, Heather, and by the way, uh, if you'd like to get in on this conversation, our phone number is 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. Heather, I noted earlier that CNN um, uh, is asking whether Trump's conduct with the election just 120 days away and his poll numbers falling, whether this may become an inflection point for his colleagues uh, in the Senate and so forth, or whether they're going to just keep sticking with them, go down with this ship, uh, even as their own constituents continue to be infected and die at record rates. Uh, any guess on how the GOP plays this out in the days ahead leading to the election as things are beginning to look pretty grim?
3: Well, I wish I could say that, you know, yes, the time has finally come. They are, you know, that they have no choice. He's going to take them down with him. They're even if, you know, just purely out of self-interest, you would think that they would turn at some point over the next few months. But I've given up sort of making that prediction. I I have no (laughs) idea what kind of hold he has on Republican officials, Mm -hmm. but it seems to be insanely strong. And you find, as like you were mentioning earlier in the program about Joni Ernst, mm-hmm. she had no reason to say that. She didn't have to say that. Right. You know, I mean, she's, she's a skilled politician. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are ways of kind of getting out of some kind of thing, but they can't do it. They are absolutely required, or maybe by now it's, it's just habit or brainwashing or something, that they end up having to defend even the most grotesque, kind of of you know policies and statements that he makes, so i have no I have absolutely no you know uh, optimism mm-hmm. that they're going to change even if he takes them down with him, and I think he will i mean he is now at a point in the polling and you know again you know disclaimer who knows what's going to what it's going to be four months from now but you know, it is not looking good, and it's not looking good for them either. And and I have a really hard time believing that, you know, th- the Republican Party itself, I mean, we've talked about this endlessly over the years, that, you know, Donald Trump is a product of this party. He doesn't make up this party. He is the consequence mm-hmm. of years of behaviors and, and beliefs and, and, you know, various political, um, you know, kind of game playing that they've done. So he's, you know, when this is all over with, uh, the Republican Party is going to be the one left holding the bag, not Donald Trump. And uh, they have an awful lot to answer for. I don't think we can ever let them forget that this is them. And I absolutely, you know, you hear people like Chuck Grassley today. Mm -hmm on Twitter going on and on about how he really wants the Durham report, you know, that Bill Barr, you know um, you know, kind of weird yes. chase of the investigation of the investigation
1: right.
2: going
3: back to the Russia investigation in twenty sixteen. That he really wants to see some people, you know, facing some legal consequences for that. And I'm just going, Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're four months away From the election. We're in the middle of the worst crises we've seen in decades. I mean, this is, we're not even talking about the economic, the horror of the economic um, uh, disaster that has followed Trump's failure. Uh, on the on the coronavirus I mean and these people are talking about that you know crazy stuff I mean this is ridiculous
1: I guess and there's the answer they're going down with the ship uh, Heather yep, I got to take a quick I, so. uh, I gotta take a quick break here and I would point people by the way over to your uh, piece today at uh, salon.com where you talk about uh, well speaking of what happens after Donald Trump uh, you are um, crowning Tucker Carlson of Fox News. <laughs> Not me. As the apparent next, uh, the heir apparent to Donald Trump. Uh, Very interesting uh, uh, article, though, and a comparison between Carlson's rhetoric right now on Fox News and Donald Trump's rhetoric right now at these uh, appalling speeches and so forth. Let me take a quick break. We'll come back with some of your calls at 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. For Heather Digby-Parton and or me, and we'll see if we have some time for the Russia bounty story, which is just so many of these stories have become mind-blowing at this point, I don't even know how to approach them. But approach them we will. After a quick break, I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That's some uh, great music from Ennio Morricone from uh, the Untouchables. One of my favorite gangster movies and one of my favorite theme songs. Uh, we are speaking with Heather Digby Parton about uh, all nightmares Donald Trump over the past weekend that I've been trying to avoid, but she's making sure that I can never forget about them. You can also tweet me, by the way. I am the Brad Blog. Uh, let's, uh, let me get, or very quickly before we go to the phones, uh, Heather, I, you know, I, I know you wrote about this last week, so I wanted to get your thoughts. I have not been able to even wrap my brain around this story of the Russian intelligence allegedly paying bounties to the Taliban for dead American uh, soldiers in Afghanistan. Donald Trump's completely ignoring the story for months before then calling it a hoax and saying he wasn't told about it, then saying he was told, but it wasn't reliable. It feels like perhaps the worst Scandal, the most appalling scandal of this presidency in one sense, but I don't know what to do with it. What can we or anybody do with it at this point? I'm at a complete loss. You got any advice for me, Heather?
3: I don't know about any advice, but I do think I do think it's interesting, particularly in light of what we were just talking about about whether or not the Republicans were going to turn on on Trump finally, and even if only out of out of some kind of sense of self preservation. Um, and my feeling was no, I don't think you know. So far, we, at least, we have no evidence that that they are. But this story, this Russian bounty story, is something different than we've seen before. And the reason I say that is is that it's coming out of parts of the government, these leaks came out of parts of the government that really don't do a lot of leaking. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me as I'm reading this whole thing and the way it came down, you know, the story sort of flowed over the course of several days with new kind of more vivid details coming every time, Mm -hmm. finally the big rave up, you know, the story that, yes, American soldiers were actually, you know, killed under this bounty system. And uh, you know we're in the middle of all this craziness, so I you know didn't get the traction that it should. But I do think that it says something about the uh, you know the fact that people are leaking. In way, some of it probably has to do with the fact that the whistleblower um, program is completely defunct because Trump just fires anybody who
2: mm-hmm. you know,
3: does anything like that. But right. it also has to do with the fact that I think maybe there that there are parts of the government, the uh, you know deep state, if you will that have finally reached a point where they figured that they had to say something um that they that they had to leak this information out yeah as we go into the election, because it has to, had to be on the record. I mean that, that this thing was bad enough, it was horrifying enough that it had to be on the record, and that people needed to know about it. And leaving it up to the voters, of course, as we you know we're four months away, uh, to hopefully make the right decision. Um, which I think is interesting because it came at the same time. You know, you've got Bolton's book, you've got you know other you know the mm-hmm. The high-level, you know, Carl Bernstein had that story about the phone calls that were made. Yeah, that's that's what
1: I want to say. That story, and that sort of got lost over the holiday weekend uh, because it came, you know, just before the holiday. Unbelievable story from Carl Bernstein of Woodward and Bernstein fame uh, over at uh, CNN uh, where he, uh, you know, (laughs) where his his top staffers, and we're talking about, you know, guys like uh, John Bolton, H.R. McMaster, James Mattis, Rex Tillerson, uh, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, they describe him as delusional on these phone calls with these world leaders in which uh, he's attacking the, the the female ones. Theresa May, the prime minister of uh, well, then the prime minister of the U.K., Angela Merkel called her stupid. Uh, these these um, top officials described his behavior towards these women as near sadistic. And then at the same time, he's getting on the line with the uh, dictators and autocrats in Saudi Arabia and North Korea and talking about the idiocy, the, quote, idiocy of his predecessors, Bush and Obama, saying they didn't know B.S. Let me take a quick, uh, couple of quick calls Well, we're very short on time, as usual. Uh, Anthony in Ridgecrest, uh, very quickly, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Well, welcome.
4: I think I have a way of getting rid of the entire COVID virus. Within two weeks, yeah, have to do have one day where everyone goes out and coughs on everyone else, and within two weeks, the entire virus is gone. Just need one good purge a day. We need a day of purge, and we can get rid of this.
1: I hope you're joking, because there's a whole bunch of folks on the right who are completely in favor of that idea. They think somehow that will gain them herd immunity or some such. It won't. It's not a good plan. But thanks, Anthony. Anyway, let me go to uh, Roger uh, very quickly up in Minneapolis. Hey, Roger, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Quickly, what's you got a question for uh, Heather?
4: Well, I'll just, I'm sorry, I have to do this. One of the highest honors imaginable, having both Heather and Brad on the phone at the same time. Wow, he's out. Um, today, um, uh, I broke my um, uh, four-months, uh, Are are you able to hear me?
1: Yeah, we can, but we're we're very short on time, Roger, so very quickly, if you don't mind. I'm
4: very worried about the impact that um, uh, people needing minor attention at hospitals, I'm very worried about the impact that this is going to have on health care, especially as this virus continues to gain speed. And let me just put in a plug for... In Masters interview, yes, uh, on 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 Sunday. With Roger Morris, you guys have to listen to it if you really want to be afraid.
1: Thank you, Roger. I appreciate I appreciate that. And no, I don't want to be afraid. Uh, Heather, I've got uh, just a few seconds here. Uh, you know, if if we're going to ignore it and people are going to get tired of it, Roger makes a good point. The rate of death and infection for people who don't have COVID is also going to go up with it as we're all busy ignoring it, and uh, COVID is getting worse across the country.
3: Absolutely. And and can I just say, you know, this is the most embarrassing thing I've ever experienced as an American. The saddest thing I heard recently was a scientist, I think he was Swedish or, or Scandinavian, saying that he couldn't believe what was happening in America, that everything that they had learned about epidemiology prior to now had come out of the CDC, which was the world's greatest infectious disease institution, and he can't believe what he's seeing now with our abject failure in dealing with a you know a pandemic and epidemic in our in our own within our own borders, the whole thing it's just it's it's an awful awful embarrassment and a sign that you know we really are you know as Tom Bossert said uh, in his tweet this weekend we're in trouble.
1: The awesome embarrassment continues on our next thrilling broadcast. You can find Heather Digby Parton at salon.com and at digbysblog.net. You can also follow her on the Twitters at digby56. It's been too long, Heather. It won't be quite so long next time, if I'm lucky, and maybe you're not. <laughs> Great talking to you, Heather. We'll do it again soon.
3: Thanks for having
1: me. You bet. All right. Uh, my thanks to all of you for tuning in today, as well as to my board operator, Kiana Williams, and to my producer, Desi Doyan. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the BradBlog. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I hope. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Let's do it.